What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Monday, July 2nd, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The fight over the replacement for Anthony Kennedy will only be a fight if there is a defection among Republicans who are opposed to overturning Roe versus Wade. Such Republicans would include Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and a run out of Republicans. That is it. All the other Republicans will not say that women have a right to an abortion, at least sometimes, even if she wasn't raped or won't die without an abortion. By the way, the abortion in the case of the life of the mother, this is a category that's totally irrelevant to medical science. And this fight won't be a fight if one of the self-avowed anti-abortion Democrats, like Indiana's Joe Donnelly or Joe Manchin, does defect. Though Manchin did get a 100% rating from NARAL, the group that fights to keep abortion legal, and Murkowski got a 0%, even though that would seem to be an inverse of their stated positions on abortion. But there is another way to have a fight, and that's not to have a fight at all. Remember, this is how Mitch McConnell won the fight last time, by holding Antonin Scalia's seat open until after Election Day. And Trump won, and they got Neil Gorsuch. Why then would it not be fair for Democrats to do what they can to maneuver to hold this current seat open to see if they could get a more favorable Senate after the elections? I mean, Scalia died with 11 months to the election. Kennedy just announced last week, meaning there's only a little over four months to the election. Aha, Mitch McConnell has an explanation. This is not 2016. There aren't the final months of a second-term, constitutionally lame-duck presidency with a presidential election fast approaching. For instance, in 2016, LeBron James was a Cleveland Cavalier. Now he's a Laker. So you can't compare the two. I mean, in 2016, Donald Trump, a self-avowed groper of women, never held elected office. But Al Franken was one of the most powerful men in America. 2018, Al Franken holds no elected office because he denied groping women, and Donald Trump is the most powerful person in America. Totally different period. 2016, Roseanne was a punchline, not a TV show. Today, well, that that one's the same. Yes, a totally different time. You can't even compare the two. I like his reference to the constitutional lame duck period. I have read the Constitution, and I missed that reference to Waterfowl. The long game happens to be the only contest Mitch McConnell knows how to play, and he sets his sights on getting a nominee to the floor, and I do not see how he is going to be stopped. And just because he had one set of rules one time, there is no reason to think he should stick to those sets of rules the next time, and I want everyone to keep that in mind when Mitch McConnell and those of his ilk reassure us that they're not looking for anyone to overturn precedent. On the show today, I spiel about the new Democratic Party, not just for breakfast anymore. But first, with the mercury approaching triple digits, there is one surefire way to beat the heat, saunas. Yes, we're going to talk about the effects of that Finnish staple, the sauna. What better 
day to discuss this than a day when small children are spontaneously combusting on the streets of the Northeast. Saunas. They're hot. They're scorching. But are they bullshit? So here's a little uh, Mike Pesca fun fact. Every time I go through Grand Central Station or Grand Central Terminal, as it's properly called, with a friend or a loved one, I will turn to my associate and say, it's like Grand Central Station in here. I can't help myself. It's just something that I do. Similarly, if you ever find me in a sauna, and you probably won't, and I am familiar enough with you, I will turn to you and I will say, it's like Grand Central Station in here. No, I will say it's like a sauna in here, which brings us to, is that bullshit? No, not my jokes. They are pretty terrible. But what about saunas? Do they work? Yeah, they're hot. But what are the real demonstrable benefits? So joining us is Maria Konnikova. She is author of The Biggest Bluff. She is going to enter the hot box of inquiry that is the world-famous gist is that bullshit segment. Hello. Hello, Maria. Welcome to our sauna. Hey, Mike. Let's sprinkle some water in that hot rock. Can we get a sizzling effect here? Can we just start this segment off with a statistic that I found absolutely mind-boggling? Yeah. So do you know what the population of Finland is? Um, I wouldn't expect you to, but... I don't know. I'm going to say, I'm just going to guess it's around 5 million. Very good. Five and a half million. Okay. And now guess how many saunas there are in Finland. Wow. I see, I love when people ask me to do this. A lot of people don't like the guessing game type things. I love things, the guessing game But I love the you. guessing game. So I know how to do this. I'm going to give our listeners a tip. So you know it's probably a high number. She's surprised. You don't want to get it right. You want to set up the excitement. So you said 5 million Finns. I'm going to guess, yeah. I don't know, 250,000 saunas. Nope. Are you saying it's more than that? Here's the pro <laughs> you did, you, you did so well. <laughs> you did so well. How many saunas are there in Finland? So there are about one million wow. saunas. Wow. That's one sauna yeah. for every 5.5 people. Yeah, and you know that there are like twelve <laughs> or 15,000 Finns who just don't like saunas or can't. So there's probably some guy who has three or four saunas. I mean, can you imagine in a... Like, I just, I couldn't, when I saw that, I was just completely floored. Yeah, yeah. It's like artisanal mayonnaise joints in Greenpoint. It's that kind of ratio. Yep, exactly. All right. Exactly. So the Finns make claims about saunas. Yeah, so some of the claims that have been made, they range from cardiovascular effects, so they help your cardiovascular fitness, to the most recent study that he did was on strokes. So reducing the risk of stroke. But then um, there have been claims that have gone to, it helps diabetes, it sure. helps uh, dementia, it helps cancer. These are all actual claims that I, have been I'm made. I'm sure every claim um, is made by the Finns about and, saunas. And so these are some of the claims that have been okay. made about saunas. There's a, there's one researcher in particular, Jerry Lokanen. 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 Yeah. Um, from the University of Eastern Finland. Eastern Finland. Eastern Finland, yeah. yes. Who has worked a lot with data on saunas. Uh Well, specifically, he's been working with this huge um, cohort of men that's 2,315. Yes, shirtless men. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's the Quopio, I'm probably mispronouncing everything because I don't speak Finnish, Quopio Ischemic Heart Disease Risk Factor Study. And this is 2,315 men who've been followed from 1984. Okay. Um, Stalked almost. Absolutely. (laughs) So so this researcher has been- 
Lukanen. Yeah. He has used that cohort to study some of the effects of saunas observationally. Mm -hmm. And he's also done some experimental work. Most of the claims that we see about the health benefits of saunas come out of his work one way or another. Ah. So he's been doing this for a while. Is he underwritten by saunas or is the sauna company? You know, I actually, I couldn't find any sauna sponsorship, but you know what? If there are one million saunas in Finland, I'm getting, I'm guessing that everyone's tied to a sauna somehow. Mm -hmm. What... Lokanen has observed was that in these men, observationally, it does seem that the people who went to the saunas more often during the week, by the way, the, the people who went less often went one to two times a week. Yeah, and that's the control so, group in yeah. Finland. <laughs> is, yeah. So the ones who went more often seem to have fewer fatal heart attacks. Uh-huh. Out of 300? Um, out of 2,300. Oh, 2,300. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you would expect them to have... I don't know, a few dozen fatal heart attacks. Yeah, no, there were actually over, I think, 200 heart attacks in general throughout this time, some of them fatal. We're talking, the cohort started in 1984. That's not when they were born. That's just when people started following them. So less heart disease that resulted in kind of adverse things happening, less mortality overall, Mm -hmm. and fewer strokes. So these are the things that have been found in this particular study. And what is a high sauna user? How many times a week are they going? Seven. Seven to eight. All right. (laughs) So so basically going every day, or I think five to seven. Like Basically, if you go over five days a week, or over five times, because some people go multiple times a day. And um, there's one more study. This is the only study that I could find of a large cohort, and this was the Helsinki Businessman Study. (laughs) Um, And this was (laughs) um, from a University of Helsinki team. Mm -hmm. They found also a lower rate of heart attacks. However, let's just give a huge caveat to all of these studies. And this is something that everyone has acknowledged, but actually the the University of Helsinki study made incredibly explicit. First, we're talking about Finns. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. a homogeneous population. It's a very homogeneous. And they perhaps come from a hardy stock, let us say. And um, most Finns start going to the sauna when they're little kids, mm-hmm. and they go at least once a week. And a lot of houses have saunas. That's why we started off with this crazy statistic. Yeah. Um, so it's a when they played part. the movie Airplane in Finland, they cut out the line. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? Because of course, <laughs> all those little Finns had. Yeah. So so. A good thing is it's homogenous, mm-hmm. so you you don't have a lot of the same, like, cultural, socioeconomic things that could affect it, yes. um, that affect it in other ways. But the bad thing is also that we're talking about health and you have a homogenous sample right, right. of people who we don't know what they're, what would have happened if you had taken a very mixed sample. And so there are limitations that come from any sample like that. And th- th- there's a problem of reverse causality that you can't actually avoid in any observational study. That the, the healthier people, people will ex- go to the sauna more. Exactly. They exactly. feel spry. And, there's and, no, yeah. and when you're in, in an observational study, there's no way to control for that. And the other thing that I will say, which is something that actually jumped out at me in these studies, is that at the beginning, when they were kind of matching things up and making sure that all baseline behaviors were, were matched up, it was all self-reported in the mm-hmm. 80s. So... It's stuff like I say that I smoke once a week. I say that I do this um, and I fill this out at home. And back in the 80s, there were also, I think, probably fewer checks on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So there are issues with this. And I would really like to see this replicated in other areas. Now, when we start getting to dementia 
et cetera, I just don't even want to go there. I think we have, there's good data for the cardiovascular stuff. Um, there seems to be in this particular population. And actually, Lockenin, we get him in one more time, just did a study that was actually experimental in 2018. And he got 102 people who were healthy but had one risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, and he had them do a 30-minute session at 73 degrees Celsius, which is... 163.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, oh Lord. Um, and 10 to 20% humidity. And they measured a bunch of stuff like blood flow, et cetera, before, after, and 30 minutes after. And they did find that the saunas lowered blood pressure and seemed to positively affect the stiffness of arteries. And so it means that actually there are some positive things that happen physiologically when you go into the sauna. Yeah. But I think that your caveats will inform our decision and our pronouncement when we ask, yeah. saunas are good for you. Is that bullshit? If you it's, are a finished If you're male, a fin, 100% <laughs> yes. Oh, they can also, like, if you have, if you're about to have a heart attack, don't go into a sauna because it does speed up um, your heart rate. Right. Okay. So in the most conscribed, <laughs> is that bullshit ever? If you are a fin who's never been to a sauna without a heart condition, <laughs> a sauna might help you, your heart health. Is that bullshit? No, not bullshit oh, at all. very good. That seems good. Take those caveats, <laughs> take them to the sauna and take them to the bank. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Biggest Bluff. Thank you for playing. Is that bullshit? Thank you for the schwitz there, Maria. Anytime, anytime. Do you feel cognitively enhanced? A little, a little CE, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about, you know, the Helsinki Olympics and Tukarask and just all, right. all things Finnish. Angry Birds, Nokia phones, those bastards from Estonia. Just, I'm having Finnish <laughs> thoughts. And now, Maria, we are Finnish. We are Finnish. And now the spiel. I was, I will admit, last week I did two segments on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's a little self-conscious. I mean, the gist is not just nationally, but internationally listened to. We have a national audience. I don't want to get too local. I guess, yes, she will be serving if she wins, and she's going to win. Uh, she'll be serving in the U.S. Congress. But I'm a New Yorker. Maybe I was affected by the fact that I know so much about Queens and Brooklyn, and I was excited to point out that the Whitestone Bridge is the very connective tissue between the Bronx, where Ocasio-Cortez lives, and Queens, where most of the people in her district live. Ocasio-Cortez from the Bronx. This means with no Whitestone Bridge, no new face of the Democratic Party. But is she the new face? Well, in terms of media exposure, yes. I, host of a humble New York-based somewhat news but also bears and flags-driven podcast, I worried about overexposure by talking about her twice. And yet, there she showed up on the Today Show, on the Colbert Show, half a dozen CNN and MSNBC shows. And yesterday, she was discussed on all but one of the Sunday shows, and that includes actually being on Meet the Press, where she showed up to be interviewed by Chuck Todd and was made to listen to a contextualization slash dismissal by Nancy Pelosi. This exchange is about a minute long. Let me first start with something that um, Nancy Pelosi said about mm -hmm. your victory mm -hmm. earlier this week. Take a listen. They made a choice in one district. So let's not get yourself carried away as an expert on demographics and the rest of that within the caucus or outside the caucus. It is not uh, to be uh, viewed as something that stands for everything else. She was a bit defensive. A lot of people coming at her saying, your victory, 
means a lot more than just a primary win mm -hmm. in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you react to that? Well, I think that there are a lot of districts in this country that are like New York 14, you know, with um, that have changed a lot in the last 20 years and whose representation has not. And it's not to say whether someone should be voted out or voted in, but I think it definitely speaks to perhaps us evolving in our messaging and at least how we do things. Okay, so let's note how she answered the question. She takes the supposition that she is not necessarily something that stands for something else, which would be synecdoche, I think would be the term for that. So she hears that and what she says is, well, oh, sorry. So she hears that and she answers that, I guess, charge or, or that idea in terms of talking about how to appeal to a changing district. She talked about messaging. The answer she was giving was about things like outreach and responsiveness and campaigning. But elsewhere, that larger thing that Ocasio-Cortez was said to stand for wasn't campaigning or trying hard or wearing out your sneakers or constituent service or youthful vigor or actually trying to win the primary rather than taking it for granted. These all seem actually pretty tangible lessons of that bigger thing that she might stand for. No, the larger thing was said to be the leftward tilt of the entire Democratic Party. Uh, over on ABC's This Week, here's how Chris Christie explained her victory. So she wins the primary by saying abolish ICE. So what happens? Kirsten Gillibrand, who's supposed to be smarter, says abolish ICE. Kamala Harris comes out and says, and the lemmings start following right. down the line because they're following what they think was the result of a primary and they want to run for president. That's not leadership. Well, Christie got that well, a little bit right. Kirsten Gillibrand did say, let us abolish ICE. We should protect families that need our help, and that is not what ICE is doing today, and that's why I believe you should get rid of it, start over, reimagine it, and build something that actually works. But is that because one upstart congressional nominee beat out an incumbent who didn't show up for a debate? Was it Ocasio-Cortez's ICE stance that other politicians are noting, or the fact that she actually tried and also maybe the fact that she was about 135 times more charismatic than Joe Crowley. On CNN, the idea that Ocasio-Cortez is taking her whole party to the left was given a quite thorough consideration. So you'll hear David Urban, former Trump campaign aide, now CNN commentator, agreeing vehemently with fellow CNN commentator and former Ted Cruz speechwriter Amanda Carpenter and then Jake Tapper jumps in. There's, there's a radical left movement, which is going to make it much, much tougher for the Democrats to take over in 2018 and all but ensure President Trump's victory in 2020. Yeah, I would say we have to talk about the S word. And by that, I mean socialist. Um, yes. We have leaders of the Democratic Party, the new faces, Bernie Sanders, who campaign on a socialist agenda. We're talking abolish ICE, free Medicare for all without any plan to They call themselves socialists. Yes, They're absolutely. members of We're Democratic not even, like, Socialists of America. It anymore. Yeah. So how far left? is the party going? I think that makes many Democrats uncomfortable. And what Are you concerned the party's going to the left? I mean, we, here's the evidence. We have two senators, Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren, coming out against ICE. That's one piece, one giant piece of evidence. And here's the other huge piece of evidence, the ascendance of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Guys, ladies, people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been in one election in her life. In that election, she won fewer than 16,000 votes 
Fewer than 16,000. 15,897 to be sure. Everyone who has access to the breaks of this conversation needs to do some pumping. Why would the Ocasio-Cortez victory signal a realigning of the entire party? I mean, here she is with her 15,897 votes. And there, over in Orange County, California, the state senator from the 37th district is John Morlack. Is anyone talking about John Morlack? That guy got 228,480 votes. He got 14 times the number of votes as the person who has realigned the Democratic Party. If Ocasio-Cortez had run for the Capistrano Unified School District Governing Board member for Trustee Area 2, she'd have come in second because Jim Reardon got more votes than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What about in the Irvine Unified School District, where the top three vote-getters get elected? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would not have been elected. She'd have come in one, two, three, four, five. She'd have come in sixth place under Nas Hamid. If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had taken her vote total, her politics-shifting vote total, and tried to take all those votes and get on the city of Fullerton City Council, she'd have been denied. She would have come in fourth in that race for Fullerton City Council. Let us now move to Texas. Mike, Mike, we get it. You do not have to read to us all of the vote totals of everyone who got more votes than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh, but I do, because I've got some good numbers from Texas school districts. Let us go to Spring, Texas, the, according to statistics, 33rd biggest school district in the state. There, Deborah Jensen got more than 24,000 votes, more than 50% more than the earth-shattering, world-shaking, Democratic Party-transforming Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Is anyone saying, let us now listen to Deborah Jensen's stances. She must be the new face of the Democratic Party. Oh, that was spring, Texas Mike. You're not going to read more. Yes, I am, because I understand how persuasion works. What you do is you keep throwing Texas election stats at people until they are persuaded. That is just the science. The Leander, Texas School District, Chris Remy, 19,656 votes, more than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he lost. He came in second. He lost to Pam Wagoner, 25,000 votes. Listen, I am not faulting Ocasio-Cortez for her low vote total. In fact, she slyly used New York State's Democratic machine against itself because the Democratic machine wanted to have this bizarre series of primaries where the governor's primary is different from the congressman's primary. They wanted low turnout. They think with low turnout, only the party regulars show up. And she knew this and she worked hard and she inspired people and all credit to her. But to read into a tiny, tiny sliver of the electorate, smaller than I would guess hundreds approaching thousands of candidates got and to say that she's the one she's the difference is crazy what happened to ocasio-cortez is an interesting story the media are literally the ones who define interesting story so they gave her scads of attention it was deserved i was interested so were you but because of that amount of attention they drew suppositions that were undeserved if anything the newness 
of Ocasio-Cortez is just confirmation of two very old truths in politics. One is that the establishment, mostly the media establishment, will get mesmerized by the latest shiny object to a fare well, will misinterpret a blip as a clarion call, and will probably then run a story about, hey, what happened? I thought everything had changed. And the second thing is that Nancy Pelosi's political analysis is extremely unexciting, is somewhat self-serving, but when she says, let's not get carried away, it should not be viewed as something that stands for something else. As usual, Nancy Pelosi is probably right. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname, who both say I should be abolished. Your scotch needs to be drunk straight up, you Philistines. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He also wants ice abolished, which is why he is a huge proponent of global warming. Also, F the polar bears, the gist. We feel it is proper that ice should be under fire. And if this means ice gets watered down or even more severely changed, then it will be missed. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>